We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. Everybody wants a more meaningful relationship and to feel more connected to their partner. But the problem I deal with over and over again is what happens when desire drains out of your sex life? Each partner begins to ask, do you love me? Do you care for me? And sometimes also, can I trust you? Often it takes years for couples to come to my door, and by that point the conflict has spread from the bedroom to all areas of their relationship. My witness today is Irene Fair, who is a sex and intimacy coach for committed couples, who is based in the Netherlands, but comes originally from the US. So how you come to this work is with personal experiences of losing desire. What was your experience of that phenomena? Yes, my path to doing this work was losing my own libido in my marriage, which was um, a young marriage. We were in our uh, mid-20s. And it's a story that so many of my clients and really most people experience in their lives, where in the beginning, passion, sex, desire was abundant. We were really attracted to each other. It was great. The connection was great. And then as life took over, as things got more serious, my sexual desire started to wane. And first it was losing lubrication, then sex turning painful, then me disconnecting completely from sexuality, sexual connection, and, you know, going from this place of being in love and wanting each other to laying there next to my then husband and then realizing, thinking like, how can I not feel anything towards him? Why is there not a single reaction in my body in terms of sexual desire or sexual feelings? And what about the non-sexual feelings? Absolutely. There was there lots of love, lots of affection, certainly wanting to be with each other, wanting to spend time with each other, but nothing of the sexual kind, none of that draw, none of that wanting to be physical, to touch or be touched that all had disappeared. And how did you feel about yourself? I blamed everything on me and thinking that it was my own brokenness, believing that I wasn't sexual enough to be married, to have a husband, to be able to engage sexually, and very much taking it on myself. And it was very difficult. Obviously, I was spinning out, kind of spiraling down with all these thoughts carrying the burden, getting from one side depressed and lethargic and kind of slowing down my life. But then also on the other side, getting progressively angrier, progressively more frustrated, progressively taking it out of me, right? And not knowing what to do with all these thoughts, these feelings, all of that. So what did you do? Well, I took it on myself to figure this out. So I got a book and the book said I need to masturbate some more. And uh, I thought that that was going to be the solution, but it wasn't. We also started to do couples therapy at the end of our relationship, but it was too late. We had disconnected so much, meaning we lost the connection. We could not talk about this. We couldn't talk about really anything. And so for us, it was too late. Because it suddenly becomes incredibly personal that uh, you don't love me enough or you're putting so much pressure on me. And it becomes, as I say, incredibly personal and actually sometimes nasty as well. Yeah. For us, it was more of a silence. There was silence. Ooh, that's almost, that's almost worse, isn't it? Yeah. Because I I really love how some people say silence is violence. And in a way, it was that. We couldn't talk about it. We couldn't talk about this thing, this, you know, gigantic elephant in the room that was stumping over our relationship, that was choking the love that we had, that was 
creating all these attachment patterns that were unhealthy. And yes, we couldn't talk about it. Now, what often happens in a situation like this, when the marriage ends, you immediately think, oh, well, it was probably something to do about him and I'll have a new relationship and everything will be fine. I will find the right partner. And then magically, as if Cinderella's fairy godmother has come down and sprinkled stardust everywhere, it will all be fine. I'm sort of guessing that's not what happened. No. Because I left the relationship, like I said, being completely responsible for it in my mind and taking it on myself. And what happened was that when we separated, I started dating again and I realized I couldn't do it because I had been carrying this belief that it was me, that something was wrong with me. And how can I engage in a new relationship if I am the problem and if I cannot really engage sexually? So the relationship or the experience with the marriage and the divorce left me feeling like I was inadequate and couldn't do it. And so much of all of that was based on a very limited, very faulty understanding of number one, my own sexuality as a woman, because at that time there was literally no information aside from, well, you should masturbate more. That was the answer to everything, really. (laughs) And Um, and use lube. Yes, use lube and masturbate, and that's going to solve all sorts of sexual problems. And have a couple of drinks as well. That's the third one. Yes, thank you. Very, very powerful one. Yes, I remember, actually, now that you brought it up, I remember talking to a gynecologist about all of this, and he, it was a male, he said, just have a couple of drinks first. You'll relax. You will be able to do it. I I want to go and knock on his door and have a couple of words with him, but never mind. Let's move on. Yeah, exactly. Me too. (laughs) So those myths created this belief that it was me. And then also there's such a limited amount of information about what sexual desire, especially for women, looks like in a long-term relationship, that I was basing everything on how sex was right in the beginning, when we were so hot for each other, when the hormones were raging, when everything was new, when we were like high on all those hormones from the beginning. And based on, yeah, what I saw in the media, what we experienced in the beginning and all these myths about my own libido as a woman naturally led to these conclusions that there's something wrong with me. And this is what I see with women today, uh, with all my clients and so many women just talking to me at workshops and talks, how we get tripped up by this and we get lost and confused and take it on ourselves when it's actually not any individual's fault, but lack of education, but then also not understanding that sex in a long-term relationship is a dynamic. It's a system. It's part of a system. And we have to look at it holistically and systemically. So I think that uh, what is uh, a very good way to start looking at sex with new eyes would be to talk about the three types of sex that couples in uh, relationships tend to have, or the three types of sex there are, because some of these you can have not necessarily in a relationship. So there are two of them that are not going to help you, and there's a third one that is going to help you. So let's look at those three types. Let's start off with the first one, which you call friction sex. So tell me about friction sex. Yes. So friction sex, as well as the second type, which I'll get to in a moment, these happen to all of us, whether we we end up in a long-term relationship or not, but that they are biologically based first driven by sexual attraction. So friction sex is all about sex that happens when you you are, like I said, drunk with these hormones of newness and excitement and sexual attraction. They're so biological and primal. They make us want to be with each other. They make us think about each other all the time. They make us certainly horny and aroused and excited in our bodies and cannot wait to take each other's clothes off or rip each other's clothes off. And so friction sex comes from that energy. And again, most people will experience that naturally in the beginning of a relationship. And what's obviously unique about friction sex is that it's passionate, it's hot, it kind of has this tension that we want to release with each other. And friction is what allows you to do that. And there's a certain sort of risk and risk can actually be quite horny under the right sort of circumstances. Absolutely. You're you're with someone new, so you get to 
show yourself. You get to know them. You get to see what happens. There's this mystery and excitement and newness, all these elements that contribute to passion in sex. So the challenge with friction sex is that eventually those sexual hormones are going to wane. The excitement is going to be less because you're getting to know each other more. And couples here start to get confused. They start to think that something is wrong with their compatibility or attraction, that things are slowing down. And the reality is that, again, the hormones are naturally going to wane. And then there's an opportunity to actually slow down and get to know each other, to also involve emotions and feelings. And get to know each other more past that heat in the beginning. But what I find is that people enjoy this so much, they feel that unless it is spontaneous sex in the same way that friction sex is sort of spontaneous, because, you know, you see him or you see her going naked from the bathroom, you think, gosh, and then you're straight in. And that somehow, if you don't have that spontaneous sex, it's somehow not proper sex. And this gets sort of seen as the benchmark for all sex in your relationship, even if you've been together for 20 years. And, you know, the reality is, I mean, I've been with my partner for 20 years. You don't feel like that anymore. You might think, hmm, gosh, you know, looking good in the morning light, but, you know, you're not actually thinking about having sex because, you know, you've got to walk the dog sort of kind of stuff. Precisely. So that beginning stage is marked by a lot of freedom and independence from responsibilities. And, you know, you're usually living apart, you have your own lives, you have your own space. And again, lack of responsibilities is really important that lends to freedom. And then, of course, spontaneity when you're together. But fast forward even a year, but certainly years and decades, you have life, you have responsibilities, shared responsibilities from house to kids to dogs to you know a slew of things. And those things, of course, impact sexual desire. You cannot go back to that moment where you are so free with each other, again, free of responsibilities. And so we have to think about it differently, which is why the third type is the type of sex that grows with the relationship and shifts with the relationship. But we do use friction sex as the benchmark of how it should be, where really it's this very unique type that happens in the beginning. And you can have, you know, I would say you can have spontaneous friction sex, you know, perhaps you're on holiday, it's Valentine's Day, you know, you can have it occasionally, but don't, 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 bend, I was going to say, don't rely on it. Exactly. Um, so what often happens after friction sex is we come to the second kind of sex that, in fact, I think is more what people in long-term relationships try and do, which is actually the real killer. So let's look at that. You call this validation sex, which I think is a fabulous term. So yes. explain to me about validation sex. So if couples start to develop feelings towards each other, they very quickly shift from friction sex to this next stage, which is validation sex. And here, the main motivator, the main driver behind sex is to express and show love for each other, to care for each other, to show that you desire your partner. And the validation piece comes from how we seek the validation of our partners in a romantic relationship. So when we love each other, what that love also does is that it validates us. It validates our desirability. It validates our worthiness of being loved by someone. It validates that we are yeah, worthy of love and, and, that's all beautiful. It creates this very warm, this very passionate lovemaking feeling to sex. But the problem with love is that when we have love, we also it also comes with the fear of losing it. Mm. And so because we're using sex as a validation of our own worthiness and our own desirability, what happens is as life starts to get busier, and like we said, there's responsibilities, there's things happening, our partners become not always available to where they were in the beginning. And those no's, those rejections, those I'm not in the mood, 
become validations of the opposite. So instead of before, it was validating that you're desirable and you're worthy. Now that no means you're not desirable to me or you're not worthy of my attention or love or caring. And so what happens is we start to take those rejections and those no's as validating the opposite. Or we fear that. We fear that if we say no to our partners, that's going to send the signal that we don't value them. We don't think the world of them. And so we end up, and this is very common to women, we say Mm. yes to sex even when we don't want to. And you end up responding to your husband's desire and not to your own desire. Precisely. And oftentimes the way women get to that place is we're scared to even ask for what we want, fearing that we will cause him or we will hurt his feelings. This is how women usually talk about it. I don't want to tell him that I want to take it slower because I don't want to hurt his feelings. But when we don't say what we need, we actually have an experience that doesn't work for us. And then we don't want more of it. And then we end up rejecting him. Then it ends up being like, not tonight. I don't want to. Let's do something else. And that actually not only creates the cycle, but deepens the cycle. And at the same time, men feel that they're responsible for sex and that they should be providing a great experience for their partner. And they're desperate to try and get, you know, her to respond with bells and whistles sort of kind of thing. And then he's thinking that because she's not responding with bells and whistles, that he's not doing it right in some kind of way. Absolutely. And then he gets that message of, oh, I'm not desirable. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm not doing a good enough job. And they both start to spiral down. This is how validation sex dies. So friction sex dies basically naturally, but validation sex dies because both partners start to feel bad about themselves and start to tell themselves stories about their own desirability and worthiness and disconnect in the process. They go into their own heads. They, they, the communication either goes away and reverts into silence, or it becomes a battle of attachment types. So there's the pursuer and the withdrawer. The pursuer tries harder to pursue the withdrawer, withdraws and avoids. And so then it becomes this battleground. And what I find with a lot of my male clients is they think, well, actually, I'm not going to get validation. I'm not going to feel connected, but at least, you know, I'll have a good time sort of kind of thing. And so they just push for the good time. And actually, the more they push, the more their partner feels used. And it really gets into a very dark and unhappy place. Exactly. And also, there's another side of this, of how this plays out, whereas the man will realize, wow, this pushing is actually hurting her. Like he can see that she, it's making her uncomfortable. So he will pull back completely and say, you know what? You initiate when you're ready. But what happens is that she doesn't know how to initiate. And she feels uncomfortable because actually he's so withdrawn now that there's no connection. There's no uh, flirtatiousness happening. And so she shuts down and he's waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for her to initiate. And it doesn't happen and it doesn't happen and it doesn't happen. And then they go through these cycles where they have this once a month conversation, like what's happening? Why aren't you initiating? I gave you space. And they, again, disconnect more and more. There's more resentment, more hurt feelings, and more of this pattern. I mean, let's just finish off the nightmare scenario. And now you start arguing about other things. And if you've just had an argument about whose turn it is to collect the child from childcare, you're not going to want to have sex anyway. It's a real killer of relationships. Yeah. Yeah. I have on my website a big infographic of the 10 steps of the devolution of a relationship when there's a sex problem like this, where there's just a, they're not able to solve the tension or the difference in libido, whatever it plays out, but there's a difference and they can't reconcile. And there's these 10 steps that couples go through where, you know, I'm thinking of this as a spiral that starts small at the top and then just keeps spiraling out and getting bigger and bigger. 
And it starts with resentment and complaining, yes, about who picks the, the children up or who takes the garbage out and spiraling down to lack of trust and really like wondering, thinking, is my partner cheating? Are they wanting to leave? So there's these 10 steps in that spiral. And it's a, it's a very painful process. Yeah, I think lots of people are at this precise moment nodding along. I mean, we're putting it at its worst version, but there's a sort of another version where you can sort of just about manage sex sort of kind of thing. And it's a bit of a chore and it's sort of, you know, you sort of lie back and think of the Netherlands. <laughs> we say lie back yeah. and think of England, but you can think of the <laughs> Netherlands or That's Germany right. or anywhere beyond where you are at that precise moment. Right. And it sort of works. And I think there's a lot of sort of works going on as well. It's, it's very unusual when I do a, you know, the first intake interview and I ask about sex and people say, Oh, sex is fine. It's, mm-hmm. that's really unusual. Yeah. So what do you do? Cause a lot of women say to me, how do I know what turns me on? Cause I just really have got no idea. I've tried looking at porn. <laughs> I've tried masturbating. And, you know, how do I discover what it is that I want? Yeah, that's a great question. And it actually ties to the third type of sex and how to find out what it is that you want. And it is to recognize that, especially for women, how we show up in friction sex and validation sex, again, is driven by biology. And usually men's sexual desire will stay more or less constant through this. Maybe there's not as much passion, maybe there isn't as much excitement, but generally the libido part, because of that sexual desire, the horniness, will stay consistent for men. But for women during this journey, it will almost naturally tank because you're going from biology-driven to this uh, dynamic based on emotions and attachment, but also fraught with resentment and disappointments and disconnection, which deeply affects women. And so um, it's really important to note these things because the emotional aspect has far deeper consequences on women's libido than it does for men. And men can still be horny. And by the way, I love this comparison. So men's libido peaks every morning. That's biologically how it works. Women's libido biologically peaks at ovulation once a month. So if you look at biology, we have a big problem. We have a big disconnect. Screw biology, I say. (laughs) Exactly. So what we need to understand is that women's sexual desire is driven by far more than biology. It's driven by connection. It's driven by her own sense of connection to her body and sexiness. Do I feel sexy? Do I feel good in my body? Do I wake up with energy and connection to my sensuality? Or do I wake up exhausted and resentful and just feeling like, oh, I hate this thing, this thing that's my body? That has a huge effect on women's desire. And again, the communication piece, the the connection piece cannot be underestimated. And so When sex dies along these stages of the beginning of the relationship, it's actually an opportunity to understand yourself as a woman and to understand each other in the couple and to design sex that works for you. And so, for example, biologically speaking, we need on average 45 minutes to an hour to get to a level of arousal in our bodies as women where the body actually craves sex. Now, sex can happen at any time, really. I mean, you use lube and you make it happen. It can happen. But pleasurable sex, sex where, again, the body is craving and the body is so turned on that sex is inevitable, that takes time. And so with what I call connection sex, you design your relationship to support that. You design practices daily connection practices, both verbal and touch practices that work for a woman in terms of providing her the nutrients that would turn her on, that would create that kind of sexual desire. And connection is the piece that drives it. Am I right in thinking that when it comes to these touching exercises, it's not about 
genitals. Exactly. It's it, it. Well, it's both. It's all all of the above. Meaning, it needs to be a whole body experience. And the way women function is, we function. If you think of us as concentric circles, and I borrowed this from Sherry Winston, who has this brilliant book, uh, "Female Anatomy of Arousal." She describes us as concentric circles, and so women's bodies love to be touched on the periphery first, hands, shoulders, back head, hair, and then going inside. So the next concentric circle is a little bit more intimate. And then the next one is a little bit more intimate. So you go from, again, like hands, uh, back, head, to going more on the like the chest and maybe belly, then going into breasts, then going into inner thighs, then going into like the nipples, and then going into the genitals. The genitals, like the, the, the vulva and the clitoris being the last ones. And it's kind of like having all these body parts first activated and stimulated and vibrating with energy to then the blood going to the genitals, creating arousal and then touching them when they're ready. Whereas with men, comparing that to men, men love to be touched on their genitals right away. There's no need to kind of zoom in there. It's just like, yeah, please touch me here now. It's very different. Yes, but I think if men get too focused on their genitals, then it is very hard for them to connect with the whole person. And they really do need to bring their whole person and find the other places in their body that gives them pleasure. Because otherwise, if you don't have an erection, well, you just go home. Bearing in mind you're saying it's 45 minutes to an hour to get your partner to feel, you know, really connected – you're probably not going to have an erection over a whole of that period. So you need to be focused on other parts of your body beyond just your genitals. So it might work fine, but I think you need to be connected to more than your penis to have connected sex. At least that's my opinion. What do you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. What you're describing is that the path, the journey of the couple, and what you're describing, of course, is of the man, to meet each other in this type of sex where you are on, first of all, a different timeline than what you do in the beginning when you just can't wait to rip the clothes off each other and jump in. And that you are going through this together. Because one of the things that happens, and this is really, it's something that we all, as women, we feel, but we, we I know I didn't have words to put to this before, is that when a woman is not aroused and a man is aroused, like when he is hard and we feel him against us being hard and turned on and ready for basically penetration and going straight to orgasm, and a woman is not, so that differential actually feels very scary. Why? Because for a man, when he's aroused, what's happening is that he's pumping with testosterone and testosterone is strength. And here's a woman who's not yet aroused. She can't take that testosterone. It actually feels threatening rather than a a, a big turn on. Again, if the differential is very big between their arousal. And so for a lot of women, we end up having a fawn response, which is faking it. Okay, I'm aroused. Let's do it. Let's just get it over with. I'm fine. We fawn excitement to deal with the fact that we don't feel safe anymore. And so the dynamic that you're describing when a man connects to other parts of his body and brings all of him and not so much delays an erection, but is able to not just go and and be aroused and, and not go slowly. It's not just because you're on the runway in the plane you have to take off. Right. Because, and this is something I think is really important to tell men and women, erections come and go. So. They're like buses, you know, they come and go. You don't have to hop on the first one. There'll be another bus will be coming along in a while. So, you know, exactly. don't don't feel, don't my it. God, this is the only bus I've got to get on it or I'll be stranded here in no sexville forever. Yeah. No. Well, and a lot of that too comes from this need for validation because, you know, women have myths about our sexual desire and men have too. And one of the things I've heard is this idea that if he's not hard, he's not erect, 
that will send the signal to his partner that he's not desiring her. So there's this pressure to show that hardness, to be hard, to validate her desirability, to not hurt her feelings. And so both the genders are functioning off of so many of these wrong assumptions and leaving them unsaid, unnamed, which causes disconnect. And so Again, the connection sex is about voicing those, like, what are your beliefs? What are your beliefs? And, and starting to realize, oh, wow, this is like, that doesn't mean the same thing for me. And this is what's actually really important. And then getting synced up, like what you were saying, delaying or slowing down an erection, taking time, communicating what you want. And in that context, going back to your question of how do women find out what we want, is that it's an, it's an exploration of, I don't know what I want, but let's try this or let's try that. But doing it again in communication with a, your partner rather than figuring it out in your head based on all these faulty assumptions. Okay, I've got a couple of common dynamics that I'd like to hear your opinions on. How do you help people who can't shut their minds off? They want to go into the sensual world and they're thinking about what they're going to get from the supermarket for tea. So this is common, of course, for both men and women. But for women in particular, we need time to get out of our brain. So first thing to do is to acknowledge that this is normal. We have what's called diffuse awareness. We are picking up so much information and signals, whereas men's attention is more single focused and focused on one thing at a time. So just be kind to yourself. If you notice that you're thinking about your shopping list or this and that, do it with kindness. Like, oh, there I am (laughs) thinking about all that stuff. Then focus back, I would say, either on your breath or your fingers, you know, so feel the sensuality of running your hand down your partner's back or focus on their breathing because their breathing will tell you quite a bit of information as well. Yes. So that was exactly what I was going to say is the second piece is once you kind of acknowledge that you're doing this, Focus on the point of contact, your fingers, or it could be where your bodies are laying next to each other and the warmth that you're experiencing. Focus on the sensations, warmth, pressure, energy, like tingling in the fingers or your heartbeat or your feet moving, whatever it is that's happening, focusing on your body rather than in your mind. And the only way to shut the mind down is to change the focus of our attention. You cannot shut the mind down, but you can change the focus of your attention on something else. And when that's sensations, then you can actually have a sensual experience with a partner because sensuality is based on the senses. Now, what if being a parent has squeezed the sexy out of you? That's obviously a very pertinent question to so many people, but it's also a very challenging one because a big aspect of it is is exhaustion, right? Being a parent, you're doing so much, you're taking care of one or more kids and, and then your partner and, you know, dogs, the house. So there's the exhaustion piece and then there's the responsibility piece. Yeah, the responsibility is not sexy. Having things on your shoulders, thinking about them, feeling the pressure, especially with children, what's going to happen to them? Are they safe? Are they okay? That is going to squeeze the sexy out of you. And, you know, the answer to that is, of course, not to throw the kids out and not to, not to ignore and avoid them or tune them out, but to create an infrastructure in the relationship that allows you as a couple to reconnect as lovers and to create a support network of grandparents, of babysitters, of, you know, systems in some countries, some part of the world are much better at creating systems that support parents than others. And I'm speaking in particular about the United States that has very little structures like that. But it's really about designing that infrastructure that supports you to be lovers with each other and not just parents, not just practical managers of your lives. And that requires time to yourselves. It requires time when you know that the kids are taken care of and so that you can connect, that you can have that time where it's just about the two of you, not about doing something, but about looking into each other's eyes or opening up your hearts about your struggles or your dreams. And certainly to have time to touch 
without purpose. Touch because you want to touch your partner and spaciousness for it to evolve to something else. So that infrastructure is very important. And it's a much bigger answer than just saying, do this as a parent, and it's going to infuse sexiness back into your life. There's no one word answer to that. But I think you need to create rituals that get you out of the parent space into the lover's kind of space. And that might be taking a bath together. Do you know what my number one sex toy tip is? The best thing that will improve your sex life, and this is the most controversial thing going, is a lock on your door. Put a lock on your bedroom door and people think, oh my gosh, what if there's a disaster? You know, what if there's a fire? I said, well, the children can shout fire. Just because they can't get into your bedroom doesn't mean that you're a bad parent. What it means is you're telling your children that there are times when parents need private space and time and they can knock on your door. The idea they can walk in at any time. So the best sex toy... (laughs) is a lock on your door. Absolutely. What do you think? Do you agree with me? Absolutely. Lock on your door and permission to lock it. Permission to say, you know, hey kids, we're all as a house going to bed at 10 because mom and dad need time, right? That permission to set aside time for yourselves and to create like literally the boundaries, the door, the lock that protects this sacred thing that the relationship is. Because your relationship as a couple is why you have a family in the first place. You are the bedrock, the foundation of your family. And so it needs to be protected. It needs to be treated as sacred. And like I said, we need an infrastructure to support it. So not just locking the kids out, but also creating, it's like I said, systems to take care of them so that they're somewhere also where they, they're having a good time, but you can also relax and have a good time as well. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Let me tell you about my Substack newsletter, because I'd love my Meaningful Life listeners to subscribe. The newsletter is a mix of relationship advice. I always have lots of information about sex in my newsletters and my thoughts about building a meaningful life. I'm hoping that as it grows, it becomes a shared space, somewhere you can tell me about your thoughts and suggest ideas for new podcast episodes. You can find everything at themeaningfullife.substack.com. Let me repeat that, themeaningfullife.substack.com, and you can sign up, and details will be in the show notes, as well as details of Irene's website and uh, the book you mentioned earlier about the female anatomy of arousal. What was the name of the author again? Sherry Winston. And it's a really life-changing book. Every woman and every man who loves a woman needs to read this book. Excellent. And I'll put my favourite book for men to read on that as well. So one of the things that if you go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts, you'll find as you go down the page, you will find a place where you can write into us and tell us about what's going on in your life. And I will source some expert from around the world to talk to you about it. And this is a letter that I'm going to share with Irene. I'm 28 years old and my husband and I were married for six months before he had an affair. I went overseas for business and the day after I left, he invited a colleague to our apartment for coffee. Somehow things escalated, but it all seems too convenient to me. It has now been three weeks since finding out. He has said the occasional I'm sorry over SMS and he arranges meeting points and sometimes to see each other, but I do not feel any remorse coming from him. He has said they have stopped all contact, but they work together. Every time we meet, he becomes aggressive and swears in his talking to me. A psychologist I saw said it sounds like he does not have the capacity to show remorse as his emotions besides aggression are underdeveloped. 
I have been told that I might have to lick my own wounds and recover on my own, but I feel like I will only be able to move forward when I feel him showing some kind of remorse. Otherwise, how do I know that he understands that what he did was wrong? Why doesn't he want to do all that he can? He just keeps saying, I must move back home so we can make this work, but he won't deal with the affair itself. I want to have hope that our marriage can survive, but the signs seem too strong that this will not work. If I get help on my own, I feel like I'm telling him, it's okay, you can do this again. I've got my own back. So, Irene, a really sad story and full of pain. What would you say to this unfortunate lady? Well, first thing is, you know, my heart goes out to her. And there's so much here that not just the affair, but also like I can imagine the kind of thinking that's going through her mind about validation, right? Like what about herself and her desirability and worthiness and um, how could someone do that to her? And so I'm just so sorry that she has had to go through this and face this. And I can only imagine the betrayal that she's experiencing as well. The betrayal piece is really what for me is the most painful piece about affairs. And what I see with people is that it's not only about the sex piece, but about the brokenness of trust and and what happens afterwards, right? Like, how do you repair it or not? How do you even live with a lack of repair? My advice first is to take care of yourself, to seek support, whether it's working with a, with a therapist or just surrounding yourself with things that feel good, that reinforce your own validation, that you get to remind yourself that you are worthy, you are attractive, that this wasn't about you. That's a way to shore up your own resilience. But when it comes to the partner and the relationship, repair has to happen. And what you need to repair in the relationship is the trust that was broken. To sweep that under the rug and to basically the way she describes her partner's words is just let, like, like move in back together. We'll, we'll just start over. We'll make it work. That's only going to work on the surface because the repair to the emotional connection hasn't happened. The repair to safety hasn't happened. And that safety is going to make a big difference between going through the motions in that relationship or harboring resentment and building distance and having fights or true emotional connection, feeling close to each other, loving each other and growing deeper in the relationship. And for that, both partners need to want to show up to do that and obviously need to be able to have the capacity to show up to that. Sometimes people show up and sometimes they don't. And it is really difficult if you've got a partner who the only emotions they can um, express is anger. And if everything comes out of anger, that's nearly always a sign that actually his parents didn't actually teach him about emotions. They didn't allow him to have emotions. Maybe they were very angry themselves and they gave that sort of kind of message. But the problem is it's not your job to sort out your husband's emotions. Exactly. The two things I want to respond to in particular, if I get help on my own, I feel like I'm telling him, it's okay, you can do this all again. I've got my own back. Well, I think if he's not going to get help, you do need to have help. You do need to have support. You do need to look after yourself. And actually, however supportive our partner is, we've actually got to look after ourselves. We've got to have our own back as well. It's brilliant if other people have it too, but ultimately, we are responsible for ourselves. So that support, and it might be support to actually look at this relationship and say, look, do I actually want to have children with a man who actually can't access his feelings? Do I want to have a man who is not interested in helping me with my emotional load? I'm not going to pass it over to him. He hasn't got to perform sadness in a way that I'm going to find acceptable, but he has to open up a little bit more than just rah, 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 rah. And if he won't get help for himself, if he won't get help for you as a couple, if you won't come and see a therapist where somebody like me can help him open up, 
you need to get help for yourself because, mm. you know, you need help and it might be help to stay in the relationship. It might be help to leave, but mm. do consider, you know, that he is not the block to you getting help. And that's okay. really important because you are hurting, you are worthy of support, not just your relationship needs support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also want to add to this piece of what you said, um, you're not responsible for your partner's emotions. What you are responsible for is being very clear and direct of what you need in the relationship. And that's where working with your own therapist is going to help you figure out what your needs are and to put words to that, a specific kind of words, which is vulnerable words. What happens in conflict in general, but certainly with affairs, is that it's very hard to get vulnerable when you've been hurt so tremendously. And so what happens is that we shut our feelings down, we close our hearts, and we become very logical and reasonable, or very unreasonable and unlogical and angry, (laughs) but none of that actually has the kind of vulnerability that's needed to move forward, whether it's continuing the relationship or ending it, that vulnerability allows you to connect and then make a decision rather than just react and and bolt or, or pretend. So that vulnerability has the power to oftentimes work through some of the kind of the diagnoses that we we make of each other. Like we will make a diagnosis, oh, my partner is not emotionally available. Like he cannot handle his feelings, all of that. And so that again, creates distance. And to break through that is to start being vulnerable. Wow, that really hurt. I like can barely sleep at night because I am so sad about what happened and I feel betrayed and I don't feel important to you. And I need to know that I am important to you, or I need to know this, or I need to be able to hear these things from you. That's a vulnerable way of talking to a partner rather than the diagnosing or staying at the argumentative level of you did this and now you need to show remorse and getting caught in that. That vulnerability is the antidote. And your own therapist will not only just help you find out what it is you want, but actually also help you just to ask for it. Because, you know, I need some reassurance at this point is something that your partner might be able to cope with. But if you then go on to explain for the next 10 minutes why you need the reassurance, then actually the defences have come up. So it's often, because we're so terrified of asking for what we need, Mm -hmm. we then try and justify it. And in the justifying it, we actually diminish the request. In fact, because it's now five minutes later has happened, your partner has forgotten what the request was. They're just caught up with something else in their head. So it's not just finding out what it is you need, but actually having the courage just to ask for it without the explanation, because the explanation just drags you straight back into the problem again. Yes, I, I'm, I'm smiling and laughing at this because, yes, I do so much of that in my coaching where I have couples ask for what they need. And I, then I say, stop talking, just to stop here, stop, do not say a single word. Because yes, they they muddy the the request with explanation or they they use so many words that the partner just gets lost of what are you actually even asking me so yes shorter and most importantly coming from feeling right coming from the vulnerability rather than the intellect rather than summarizing with a perfect package and please don't say what you don't want as well because that also muddies the water yes So I hope that was helpful for you. So Irene, thank you very much for being my guest on The Meaningful Life today. So I have to ask you the important question, what makes your life meaningful? Well, you know, um, the reason why I do this work and and the reason why my, my sexless marriage and my failed marriage was so impactful is because for me, what makes life meaningful is relationships. I love relationships. I remember being a uh, young and dreaming, fantasizing about falling in love and making love. For me, it's just, there's so much of life to share together. 
and to not just share external activities, although of course those are incredibly important, but to share your inner life with each other. And that's what you can do in a, in a relationship. So for me, absolutely relationships. It's a space to experience, to grow, to be ourselves and, um, yeah, to experience the magic of life. And please tell me you're having great sex now. <laughs> yes. So yeah, I had to go all the way down to rock bottom to learn about myself, my body, and yes, what makes sex connected and passionate and nourishing. And so, yes, absolutely. I only teach what I have vetted myself. <laughs> Let's put it that way. That sounds that sounds like I, I I think your vetting process could be quite fun, but uh... yes, I, I'm like a, a science researcher. If I have a hypothesis, I, I research it on my own, on my own body, and my own relationship, and uh, yeah, and then uh, take it out into the world. Well, all the details will be in the show notes, but this is not where the conversation ends because I've been sitting here thinking of the seven worst mistakes that I see in my room, and I'm going to share them with Irene and you if you become a supporter of The Meaningful Life. I'll also ask her for three things she knows deep down to be true. So if you'd like to hear the rest of this conversation, this is what you do. If you're an Apple subscriber, you'll find those details within Apple where you can subscribe to the podcast directly or for the bonus section directly. The same with Spotify. Or you can become a supporter of The Meaningful Life because it does cost money to put all of this together. And we need your support. Here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.